Once upon a time, Susan worked in the corporate office of American Airlines, and I had a secular career. And in those days, a million years ago, uh, we could travel on a whim and almost for free. And uh, I'd be at work on a Friday afternoon in my office, and Susan would call over and she would say, where do you want to go tonight? We had no kids. We were newly married. And uh, she'd say, where do you want to go tonight? And I'm like, I don't know, just look. She'd get on the computer in her office and she'd say, well, the flights are wide open to San Francisco. I'd say, get us two seats. Let's run home and grab a bag. And we'll be at the airport in an hour. And away we would go. And that was fun. It was a cool uh, few years looking back on that. We didn't even, now we look back and realize how absolutely carefree and irresponsible, I mean, not irresponsible, but you didn't have responsibilities of children and things, you know, and it was just a great phase in our life where we would just go and go and go and see things and, and uh, experience uh, stuff all the time together. We love to travel, and I think since our, uh, I, one of our early trips in our marriage went to a we were in Brazil on a missions trip just not long after we got married. And so whether it was doing ministry or just seeing the world and, and you know, taking leisure trips together, uh, we love adventure. We, we have just done so many wonderful things together, uh, but we're, we're minimalists in our decor style in our home. So if you come into our home, it's just, yeah, yeah, just... You know, it's kind of just kind of simple. We don't put much stuff on the walls, and uh, I think both of us grew up. Uh, Susan's mom, if you're watching Mary, we love you. She's kind of cluttery. Um, uh, my mom and dad were kind of hoarders, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, and so one of the things that in our marriage we were like, we don't want a lot of clutter in the house. You know, just we don't need lots of knickknacks and junk everywhere. It makes us crazy. Now, if I'm offending you right now, you do what is good for you and just fill your house with junk. Good, more power to you. You know what I'm saying? But we've always been minimalist. And so just now, maybe in our sentimental old age, uh, we've been talking about all the things that we've done, three decades of shared life together, shared experiences, uh, a shared love. So here's what we decided. We decided we're going to make a travel wall. And so we're going to take some stuff off the kitchen wall, and we've dedicated a space, and we're just going to put photos on that wall of us in places. Now, when you come over, don't be impressed, because it's just going to be our, you know, we didn't, we didn't even own a selfie stick until, you know, just like a week ago. And so, you know, they're, they're cheesy pictures of just us somewhere, but to us, there's meaning there. We see the picture, and we're transported back immediately to where that picture was taken and we're thinking about what that was and what we were doing and what we experienced there and how cool it was and and so we're going to make this travel wall in our home and so we're trying to pick out the pictures now and going through a bunch of memories and being a little nostalgic and as we're looking at all that we realize how much in three decades of life we've shared how much love we've shared how many experiences we have together how much encouragement we've shared how, how many tears we've shared how many emotions that we've been through and what makes all of that possible is love we have a relationship based in love for each other and we have made a lifelong commitment to each other and as a result and for those of you who are newlyweds, I guess maybe this is for you. And as a result, you're going to look back when you make a commitment to someone. Making a commitment to someone is the very best way to live. It is, the, it is one of the keys to joy. And, and having what I'm describing right now, do not be afraid to make commitment. I'm talking to those who haven't joined the church. Do not be afraid to make a commitment. This is where real joy and growth is found in committing to a body of believers and having that accountability. Many people I encounter in the community want to go to this like mega thing where nobody even knows their name and, you know, and okay, and that's fine maybe for, for some people, but there's not going to be growth there because there can only be growth through accountability. And somebody needs to know if you're missing. 
Someone needs to know your name. Someone needs to ask you, have you been in the word this week? Someone needs to ask you, have you spoken to Holy Spirit this week? Someone needs to help you be accountable because where that's missing in our lives, listen, don't just go to the gym. Join a class at some point. You'll see the difference, trust me. Let someone make you accountable. Let someone say, hey, we didn't see you yesterday at such and such class. And let that peer pressure work in a positive way in your life to make you a better person. And commitment is part of the key to what, uh, it's been the key, this commitment and love to our own, own marriage and our own relationship. And as a result, the byproduct of that is we have a lifetime of shared experiences together. And it's those shared experiences as we're looking at these pictures that we really realize every time we look back how rich and how blessed our lives have been. And those shared experiences, when we look back on them now, it's like reliving it for a minute. So the joy of the experience comes right back into my present again. And, and, and I get to re, relive a little snapshot of it. And reliving it gives us encouragement that we can persevere through hard times. Because see, we already made it through all of these hard times. See the dates on the pictures? We've been hanging together a long time. See, we can make it through difficulties that are going to come in our life in those seasons. And these experiences together give us optimism that there's a good future still ahead. Oh, look, we've made these memories. I bought a book the other day. She, Susan said, hey, we need some new, you know, what do you call it, coffee table book. And uh, here, and so uh, we were trying to think, okay, what kind of coffee table book fits the Herald mentality, you know, you know, and, and, and so I, I ordered this book. It's like, it's called The Bucket List. Like a hundred places you need to go before you die. You know, uh, that's our kind of book, you know. And so we have these memories, but now we're thinking, okay, but it's not just those memories. What are the next memories going to be? Listen, for those of you, again, who are parents of junior high and teenagers, do the math on one hand of how many summers you have left together. And know that around 17 or 18, everything's changing in your life. And yes, you'll still have memories together, but they won't be the same kind of memories. And it'll be different. And it'll be more difficult as you go to get everybody together. It won't get easier to get more difficult. So maximize. So start thinking about the next memories that you're going to make. And start hoping for that. Start dreaming for that. Start planning for a happy future together. And I guess in our case, we've lived a lot of adventure and I mean, if you wanted to plan a trip to climb Pikes Peak or dive the reefs around Cancun or Belize or Grand Cayman or if you want to snorkel with the stingrays or, or if you want to go do missions work and sleep in mud houses and fight rats and spiders and make disciples for Jesus in faraway places, we could bend your ear for the price of dinner. How about that, babe? For the price of dinner, we will bend your ear about any adventure you'd like to take. If we've been there, we can certainly set it up for you and talk to you about what it would be like. And uh, in our own relationship, we've read books about how to relate to each other. I recommend books. Books are good. And they can tell you, you know, how to, how to understand each other. Uh, uh, Jeremy and uh, Miss Erica do a, a module here on Wednesdays uh, frequently. It's in the rotation. Jeremy, help me out. It's not men are from Mars and women are from Venus. It's, uh, it's personality types. Say it again. You said that. I heard this. What's the red, green, blue, yellow? There's one for parents. There's one for kids. And it, all those classes, those modules that we're offering on Wednesday night, they're for you to help you understand how to be a better parent. They're for you to help you understand how to be a better husband or a better wife, how to understand the differences. And those books are incredibly valuable, and those modules are very beneficial as you learn to relate to each other. But I want to put books in one category now, and I want to put experiences in another category. We've read books about how to be better husbands, wives, parents, etc., and relate to each other, but we've also shared three decades of life experiences together. 
we've laughed together, we've cried together, we've traveled together, we've worked together, we've, we've helped each other, we've encouraged each other. So here's the bold statement I want to make to you, and I want to start taking it into a theological way now. Books can tell us about someone, but you only truly know someone by shared experiences. Now I want you to think about the truth of this. A book can tell you about someone. You may say, Pastor, let me tell you about Abraham Lincoln. I'm going to assume you don't really know him, but you've read a book. Or maybe you've done a study of many books about him and you're going to write a report or a thesis or whatever. And there's a difference in reading a book or books about someone. You can know about them. But there's a whole different thing about doing life with someone and having experience together. That's how you really know someone through shared experiences. Now, with that in mind, I want you to consider... How is it that we learn about God? How is it that you know what you know about God? And, and, and how have you formed your thoughts, your understanding, your theology, and your relationship with God? The two principal ways that we learn of God are, would you believe it, from a book, from the Bible. There's a book called the Bible that tells us about God's God revealing himself to us through his word. And the other primary way you learn of God is through personal experiences. Now, I want to just take you back to where we were last week. God's meeting with Moses at the tent of the meeting. And God has said to them, you guys have royally ticked me off, the golden calf incident. And God says, y'all go on up to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. Now, there's the context. Let me read it again now. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know who you're going to send with me. If you're not going, who's, who's going to go with me? You've said, God, you've said to me, Moses, I know you by name. Moses, you've found favor with me. God, if you are pleased with me, Teach me your ways. Why? That I may know you. Now let's just pause right there. I think we have a big misunderstanding in Christianity. We have people that are trying to be Bible experts in order to be Bible experts. Ink and paper is not God. Matter of fact, you can make ink and paper an idol. The point of getting in the Bible is not to know the Bible. The point of getting in the Bible is to know. Hello. Ding, ding, ding. The Bible was not given to you so that you could be a Pharisee. And that you could know every jot and every tittle, every comma, every... That's not the point of the Bible. And that's not the point of Christianity. And we've made it that in America. The point of knowing the Bible is to know God. It's a book that tells you how to know God. You want to be in a relationship with God. Therefore, you get into the Bible so that you will know God. Moses is begging God, God, please reveal yourself. Please go with me. Don't send me with an angel. Don't send me with a book about how to know God. I need your presence to go with me. As a matter of fact, you remember he says, if you don't go with me, don't send me at all. Please. For how would anybody distinguish the people of God from any other people, what distinguishes God's people is we have the presence of God in our lives. No presence of God in our lives, then you are not unique from any lost person out there. There's a challenge for you. If you don't have the presence of God in your life, well then what makes you unique from anyone else? It is the presence of God, the templing the tabernacling of God in us and with us that makes us 
the people of God. Let me take you to a New Testament passage, show you a very similar thing. It's John chapter 17, part of that uh, uh, upper room discourse, runs five chapters. I keep going back to this. Final instructions for Jesus departs. John 17, he decides to get on his knees and pray for his disciples. And he's not just praying for those disciples. In the prayer, he specifically says, and for those who will come. He's praying for you. But here's what Jesus says. John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life. Listen, when you see a statement like that in the Bible, you need to just pause a minute. This is eternal life. Okay, what is it? Because I'd like to know. What is eternal life? That they know you. This is eternal life. That you're in a personal relationship with God. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Listen, our cry from our hearts as disciples and followers of Jesus isn't just, God, teach me more Bible so I can be smarter than the other theologians. God, show me some new thing that's been hidden from everybody. That's nonsense. We need to be saying, God, as I get into your word, show me you. God, reveal yourself to me. God, help me to know you in a better way. God, give me a deeper understanding of you. God, know me, search me, and Lord, help me to know you. Now, in my tradition, in my tradition that I grew up in, we placed 100% of our emphasis on knowing God through his word. Stay with me now. We gave no quarter to people who said they knew God through personal experience. This is my tradition. On the other hand, our charismatic brothers and sisters, Pentecostals, Assemblies of God, etc., they placed paramount emphasis on experiencing God in a personal way. And so I know what my tradition is. I know what other traditions are. And, and all are claiming to have faith in Jesus Christ and to know God. One says we know him only through his word. They dismiss all experience. One are saying we are highly experiential and we know God through personal experience. Our Baptist brothers and sisters have always been wary of people, air quotes, getting out of control. Uh, our Baptist brothers and sisters have always been wary of people going beyond the bounds of Scripture. And as a result, they spoke against the other side who were speaking about uh, experiential emphases of the charismatic movement, of charismatic brothers and sisters who were finding rich, spirit-filled experiences in their worship and in their daily lives. So what do we do? As with most things, our goal would be to find the balance between the two. This is what I'm going to teach for a few minutes. We need to find the balance between the two. Most likely, if you were raised in my tradition, you need to move towards the charismatic side. And if you were raised to very assembly of God, you may need to move a little to the Baptist side. And I think the common ground you're probably going to find is somewhere right in the middle. Now already the ones who are raised Baptist in the room are, are freaking out. So I have to say this for them, and because I mean it, it's not just a snowball, but this is true. For our congregation, this is the official policy of our congregation the Bible is our ultimate standard on all matters of theology and experience no one in this room should have a problem with that statement the Bible is God's book given to us so that we can know him and know what to do and know how to live our lives we are not challenging the authority of Scripture here at Cornerstone we have an incredibly high view of Scripture 
and we affirm the authority of the Bible. We are asserting something, though, that may be new to you. We are asserting that an in-depth study of the Bible will reveal people having incredible experiences through the Holy Spirit's living uh, out the life of God and Christ in them through both the New and the Old Testaments. So here's what we're saying. What we're saying is, if you get into the Word, what you're going to read about is people who are having experiences. They're not saying, I learned about God from a book. They're going to be saying, I know the book, but I experienced something. Does that make sense? <laughs> I experienced something. Well, what did you experience? Well, I saw the risen Christ. Well, I was on the road to Damascus. And, well, I was in the upper room and the, the, the cloven tongues of fire and the spirit was poured out. Or I was there and I saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. Or I, they had experiences. I was at the baptism and I saw the spirit descend in the form of They had experiences that informed their faith. For the first disciples who knew Jesus, knew him physically, knew him in a personal way. Here he is, how you doing, Jesus? But they also were later filled with the Spirit, and then they wrote the New Testament. What they're writing about are their personal experiences with God in the person of Christ and in the person of Holy Spirit. They're writing about those experiences and how those experiences played crucial roles in their spiritual formation and in their understanding of God. It was their knowledge of the Bible, and for them, the Bible is the Old Testament. Okay, just stay with me on that now. There is no indication they even understand they're writing the New Testament. They're writing letters to churches, and when they say the Scriptures, they're referring always to the Old Testament. So as they're reading the Old Testament and their knowledge of the Bible is that, and now combine that with their experiences with Christ, with Holy Spirit-empowered, filled lives, now they are able to have incredible discernment, wisdom, understanding of what God is doing in their day. It was their experiences with Holy Spirit that allowed them to be able to look at a church like Corinth and say, hmm, I have solutions to your problems. Holy Spirit gave the answers on how to apply Scripture and, and principles. This is how they're applying to real-life circumstance, real-life problems, how they're bringing the Word of God and, the, and they're reappropriating it and overlaying it to their modern times. That's what's missing in our lives, by the way. We're having trouble looking at Scripture and bringing it into our current life and overlaying the principles on how to make discernments about what we're to be doing what I'm saying is their relationship with Holy Spirit with their experiences their their life experiences with Holy Spirit gave them effective answers on how to answer real-life situations and to live through the real experiences of life in the Roman Empire in the first century and well beyond both Scripture and experiences are important. I say it again because you're still nervous. The Bible is our ultimate authority. And our experiences with God will always align with the Bible and prevent us from falling into error. Now this is why John said, try the spirits whether they are of God You've got a foundation, you've got a backstop to check, you've got a standard to check things against so you know what is truth and what is error. The Spirit of God will always guide us into truth. He will never guide you away from truth. That's, this is, don't make it complicated. If you say the Holy Spirit told me to, and then you say something in the next phrase that contradicts the Bible, that's not the Holy Spirit. He's not telling you to do things the opposite of what Scripture says. You know, it, it, the Holy Spirit told me to hate people. Well, that wasn't the Holy Spirit. It may have been a spirit, 
according to 1 John, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit. He'll be telling you to do something else. If you come to me and say, well, pastor, you know, I just, you know, I'm hearing this inner voice that says, love my enemy and give my life to the ministry of Christ. And I just need to know if that's the will of God. What do you think? It's Satan telling you to love your enemy and give your life to Christ? I mean, I think we're overcomplicating everything. It should be a little more straightforward than this. If it aligns with scripture, you're, you, and the more you can distinguish his voice, I don't want to get ahead of myself, this will be in coming weeks, but the more you can distinguish his voice, then the easier it gets to have the conversation. As long as we're backstopping our experiences with scripture, we need not have any fear of genuine Holy Spirit experiences. And I think this is a reformation the evangelical, especially Southern Baptist churches, need to be making right now. As long as you can backstop your experience with Scripture, you need not fear engaging and experiencing life with Holy Spirit. Just as every aspect of our lives has been shaped by our life experiences. You are who you are because of the life experience you have. That's all I'm saying. And just as your life has been shaped by your life experiences, followers of Christ who have experienced Holy Spirit is how we are transformed into the image of Christ. God's Spirit is how we appropriate and how we live out the life of Christ in a community of believers in what we are calling the already but not yet period between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. You live in an interesting time. You are in the kingdom of God, but not everybody is. You are to be living by Sermon on the Mount kingdom values while the world is not living by those values. Right now you call Jesus king, the world does not call him king. You're in an in-between period when you are in the kingdom. The kingdom has come. Jesus is on the throne. The world just hasn't fully got it yet. But they will. And so our job is we're here colonizing and spreading the word, making disciples, and, and Christ will come and set it all right. Now let me get to a little more of the meat of what I want to say quickly. I want to say to you and remind you that God has a name. Seems very elementary, doesn't it? My tradition, though, always thought of Old Testament God. Some of you grew up with the name Jehovah. And if you want a little clarity on these names, you can go have a long conversation with Miss Leah for the price of fried chicken. It's more her thing. For the price of fried chicken, she'll explain the names of God to you. Uh, but in the Old Testament, we thought of God as Almighty God or Yahweh. Which, interesting enough, though, still means behold the pierced hands. But Yahweh is the Old Testament God. At least that's, you know, kind of our traditional thinking. You're thinking of God or Father God. But you're thinking Yahweh God of the Old, Old Testament. And the Jews were very monotheistic. They had no concept, really, of Trinity in the way you have it until the New Testament. And Paul and these disciples, these first apostles, man, they start unpacking this and their understanding, this part of what's mind-blowing, is that when Jesus is standing there saying, I am. The Pharisees and the Pharisees saying here, who are you? And he's like, well, you'll see me coming on this, uh, the clouds of glory and sitting on the throne. They're like, wait, you're claiming to be God. He's like, well, yeah, there it is. And this is the thing. How can he be God and God be God and Jesus be saying for five chapters, I'll send you the Holy Spirit and I will be with you. He is God. Exactly. And so this, this understanding of God in three persons is beginning to permeate our understanding of the nature of God. But in my tradition, we refer to Old Testament God, let's say as Almighty God or Yahweh. And then, of course, we refer to New Testament Messiah as Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ, but in my tradition, then we turned right around and we referred to the Holy Spirit as it. Is that not true? It's a very strange thing. 
So my tradition led me to think of the Holy Spirit in impersonal terms. And rather than talk about Holy Spirit, they would say, he's like wind. He's like this. He's like oil. He's like, they would give all the metaphors or symbolisms of the Holy Spirit, but they would never talk about Holy Spirit as he, as God, as person. God, Yahweh, sure, there's Jesus, the human face of God. Where's the Spirit? It. Now suddenly becomes an it. Now imagine the baggage that gave me and maybe you. Uh, it gave us this baggage of an impersonal and dispassionate attitude created in the community of believers by such language as referring to the Holy Spirit as it. Now, let me just show you what this would feel like. What if I said, the Chris, could you go tell the Allen to turn down the AC a few degrees? It's a little warm in here. And, and he would just think I'm being stupid, and he'd do it, roll his eyes at me. But let me make it worse. Let's take the names off for a minute. Hey, the deacon, would you tell the elder that we need to schedule a meeting. Now it's become more impersonal, and now it's become more ambiguous. Listen, you want a challenge? Call your wife this week and say, hey, the woman, the nurse called from the school, you need to go pick up the kid. See how that conversation goes. She'll say, well, the jerk, why don't you go get him yourself? Uh, it's a very strange speaking pattern to use the article in this way and make it, it's, it's just impersonal. That's, that's what's happening. Now, in, in our family, uh, we, we, we wanted to use family names when we named the kids, and everybody's got their own thing when naming kids. We wanted to use family names. We got the book of names down, whatever it was, back in the, you know, Stone Age. We got the book of names down, went through them all, hated everyone, threw them in the trash. And... Uh, we said, let's just use family names. And so on my side of the family, uh, we've, we've got some, some good, strong, masculine names. I have a, a great-grandfather who was a horseback circuit-riding Methodist pastor, okay? And he was named after the president. His name is Andrew Jackson Harrell, the circuit-riding preacher. And uh, so uh, my dad's middle name is Andrew, and we've got, you know, some other jack jackson's in our in our family and so we decided when we name boys we'll use my dad's middle name we'll use my middle name so we have an andrew wayne firstborn andrew wayne harold and then uh, when susan was uh, expecting number two we said okay let's use jackson now let's use that side so we have a jack ryan harold of course ryan's not a family name that's if you read fiction that's tom clancy that's the james bond that saves the world uh so we have one son named after a CIA operative, and the other have family names woven together. But, uh, but we used family names and wove that together. So even though we have other, like an Andrew Jackson Harrell or a Bobby Wayne or a Bobby Andrew, but you still can distinguish them all. And so when you ever hear my mom get mad at me, which is just about every day, you'll hear her say, Bobby Wayne, well, that distinguishes me from screaming at my dad in the old day, who was Bobby Andrew. All right, well, see, so... Even though we have similar names, and there's a little bleed over in the name, we're still distinguishable by the sequence of the names. And you get this because you have several names. It's fascinating, and I don't want to bore you with this, but it's fascinating when you travel to Asia because the way the name structure is in Asia tells you actually not only which clan, but which family and the birth order of the children. Uh, like in India, for example... Pastor Ezekiel, his real name is uh, Morungkunga Kaisha Konsoa. And you're glad we use Ezekiel. Morungkunga uh, is his name. So in India, the firstborn name of your child in, in the Maring tribe, your firstborn child's name always begins M-O. You can pick any name to go with it, but his first two letters have to be M-O. Your second-born child is Mo 
uh, no, sorry, firstborns, Ong, A-N-G has to be the first three letters. So you have Ong Kul, Ong Rung, secondborn, Mo, Mo Rung Kong, thirdborn, K-O, Kotil, Koshil Ning. So when you meet somebody on the street, they'll give you their last name. This is my clan, Morongkonga. I'm the firstborn of this clan, you know instantly. Does that make sense? So it's a really cool naming structure, but it's really comp- complicated to come up with new names that start with M-O-N-A-N-G. Okay? Just imagine that challenge. And so anyway, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, but names identify you uniquely in this way. Now let's talk about us real quickly. Uh, surname. Uh, so for those of you, if you travel... And you get that, uh, you know, Sean on the airplane, they give you those forms to fill out before you, the immigration form before you land. Uh, you know, if, it's, if you're coming into America, you'll always say first name, last name. And in most countries, they always put the last name first, by the way. If you meet Elijah for the first time in Europe, he'll introduce himself as Morar Ilya. Morar Elijah, not Elijah, Morar. Anyway, Sean, when we get on the airplane, we fill out the immigration forms. It won't say first and last. It'll say surname instead surname not even a word you guys use usually but surname is the hereditary name common to all the people in your family jared you know mcmurdo peters the family name okay we get that given name given name is synonymous with first name for you guys so that's the first name now in some cultures we got one more twist to this in some cultures there's christian name and christian name is a new first name it's a name given to you at your Christian baptism. Uh, now, just when you think about this, you'll start understanding some of the New Testament. Your name is uh, Shimon, but I'm going to call you Petra, P- Peter. Then they started calling him Cephas, a little stone. You say, what are all these different names these people have in the Bible? Well, some are family names, some are nicknames, some may have been there at baptism, they changed their name. I need to ask Ezekiel, I never asked him where he got the name Ezekiel out of the Old Testament, I would assume it's his Christian name. He took a Christian name, an anglicized Christian name. Well, that's really, really cool. But this is how we identify, and it helps us distinguish your person from other persons. Now, here's the setup. God is one. Yet he presents himself to us in the Bible in three distinguishable persons. And God interacts with us in different days and in different ways. That's very clear as you read the Bible. And if you're thinking, wow, this is all complicated, that Old Testament God's presenting himself this way and Jesus presents God another way and Holy Spirit presents God maybe another, another way, but similar attributes you know, across the board... If you think it's complicated for you, I want you to imagine being the first disciples. Because the first disciples are actually closing out the Old Testament. They are actually Old Testament people in an Old Testament system, worshiping an Old Testament monotheistic God is one is their prayer every day. And then they meet Jesus, the Messiah, God manifests in the flesh. And then Jesus says, I'm leaving you, five-chapter running discourse, and died, buried, crucified, ascends to heaven, and then the Holy Spirit, God, is poured out into their hearts. They're filled with Holy Spirit, and now they're like, wow, we've encountered the whole Trinity here just in a few years. What, What a wild ride. But in essence, you have encountered the Trinity as well, but you've encountered the Trinity maybe more in a singular personality of God. We are not left in the dark. You say, well, all we have is Holy Spirit. We are left in the dark. You're not left in the dark. Let me show you why. Colossians 2.9. Watch what Paul said to the European believers. For in Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. You want me to say it in KJV? For in Christ the fullness of the Godhead exists in one form. The old KJV used the word Godhead instead of deity right there. Let me use another word. The whole 
Trinity is manifest, if you would. When you, when you say, well, I just met Jesus, I didn't meet God. What did Jesus say about that? They said, Jesus, show us the Father. He said, you've met me. You've met the Father. In, in me dwells all the fullness of God. Father, Son, and Spirit. But I'm manifesting God to you in a way, in a physical way, that you can grasp, that you can meet, that I can put a human face on for you so that you can understand God in a way maybe that's more clear than ever in history. And just as Jesus put a face on God for us. Let me say it another way. Just as Jesus took God is a spirit... And those that worship him must worship in spirit and truth, right? Just in the same way, God who is a spirit got a human face in the form of Jesus. Jesus fleshed out God so that we could understand God in a whole nother dimension, in a whole nother way. And just as Jesus put a human face on God for us, now the spirit has put a human face on the spirit of Jesus, and he wants to live with us experientially now. Let me read 2 Corinthians for you, okay? 2 Corinthians 3 says this. I'll elaborate this in coming sermons. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being changed, transformed into the image of, His image, the image of Christ, the image of God, we are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. They're just bleeding into one, but they're separate. But they're bleeding into one. (laughs) This is the tension. Names are personal. Now, here's going to be a challenge for all of us. Names are personal. And so I'm going to ask you to begin from this morning to try to unload our baggage. And I'm going to ask you to work together as you talk about God. And I'm going to ask you to start trying to drop the article, the, and let's call him Holy Spirit. Spirit, he has a name. He's not the other part of God. He has a name. And it could be you've been saved for 50 years and you've never called him by his name. Instead, you've said, hey, the elder, hey, the woman, hey, the God who hangs out here impersonal and it's dismissive grieve not the spirit address him by his name now I realize in the scripture they're talking about the spirit of God and the Holy Spirit and and what he does but they understood the spirit of God or the Holy Spirit They understood Holy Spirit as his personal name. And name is a big deal to the Jewish culture. If you don't believe it, they won't even write the name of Jehovah or Yahweh. It's so holy to them. Holy Spirit has a name. Drop the article, the. Now, you're going to catch me a thousand times using the. Roll your eyes at me, and I'll go back and correct myself. It's my baggage. I was taught this way. Holy Spirit has a name. Holy Spirit is living in us. Let's refer to him by his name. I'll ask Erica to elaborate in the podcast this week on this. She has some unique insights. My point is that God has names, and different names are associated with the three persons of God. And yet at times, the names bleed together into one. For example, let me show you this quickly. Is he spirit of God or is he spirit of Christ? Which is it? And what I want to show you very quickly is that Paul has no tension. He has no internal turmoil. He has no tension using these two 
names interchangeably. And if Paul has no tension with it, I'm going to suggest to you this morning, you should have no tension with it. I think we would look at Paul as somebody with a superior grasp of this issue. And if he has no tension in using the names interchangeably, let's not us have tension about it. Through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, through the indwelling presence of Holy Spirit, my baggage runs deep. It's going to take a while. Through indwelling presence of Holy Spirit, we are experiencing none other than the personal presence of Almighty God. Let's say it another way. Through the indwelling of Holy Spirit, we are experiencing none other than the indwelling of Christ. There are several passages that use the terms interchangeably and Holy Spirit is called Spirit of Christ. Galatians 4, 6. Watch this. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Paul is saying to the Galatians, since you've received God's Son, God has sent God's Spirit, the Spirit of God's Son, to live in your heart. Now you guys know Jesus ascended. We already talked about that. Bodily ascension. And we believe in a bodily return. When we say Jesus is living in my heart, you don't really re believe Jesus' body is inside your body. That's weird. What you're saying is that God in some spirit form lives inside your body and you're a living temple of God. That's what's really happening here. For Paul, living in the spirit was living out the life of Christ. As a matter of fact, sometimes we take verses and we pull them out of their context and we don't realize what their context is. I'm going to read you one of the most famous verses in the Bible, but I'll read you the context ahead of it, okay? Listen to this. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Listen, that passage starts up there in verse 19. That I know that through the spirit of Jesus Christ, I'll be enabled to finish this thing all the way to the end. Sometimes we say, well, you know, to live is Christ, to die is... Listen, because the spirit of Christ is in me, who is Holy Spirit, I am able to live for Christ. It's possible for you to live out the life of Christ because of indwelling Holy Spirit in your heart. He is the one powering. He is the one enabling. He is the one gifting you to do whatever he needs you to do. He'll gift you to do it. He's the one encouraging you. He is the one coaching you. He is the one that sometimes puts a filter and a muffler on your speech. He is the one guiding your behavior. And he is available for you unless we're ignoring him. He's here. For Paul, the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God completely bleed together. And they are so interconnected that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is synonymous with your salvation. I'm reading from Romans now. You, however are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. He used the term Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ interchangeably back to back. And here's what Paul was saying. No Holy Spirit in you know Jesus Christ in you 
Some religions teach, well, you get saved and then the Holy Spirit comes later. <laughs> Paul saying, no Holy Spirit, no Jesus in you. Right, let me say it another way. Jesus is in you uh, by the Spirit of Christ or Holy Spirit is living in you. When we say, let's pray and receive Christ, we are receiving Christ. And so he sends his Spirit to live in our hearts. That's exactly what's happening. All right, let me, let me transition and, and land this plane. If you have a relationship with someone, since I talked about Susan and, and, and my relationship, if you have a relationship with someone, then you've made memories together through shared experiences. If you have a relationship with someone, you've made memories together even if you've only been married a few months, you've started making memories together through shared experiences. Here's my question for you in closing. Do you know about God or do you know God? You say, well, I've been in the Word all my life. Mm -hmm, I'm afraid of that. Do you know about God? Or have you experienced God? If you have a personal relationship with God, then God's Spirit has been living in you since your salvation experience, and you should have supernatural memories of supernatural experiences with God. If you've made a life with God and He's made a home with you, you have memories about shared experiences with God's Spirit living with you. Maybe those memories look like times when you can say, yeah, I remember this time when Holy Spirit comforted me when I was so depressed and discouraged. He came to me and He encouraged me. Or maybe you could say, you know what, I remember this time when I was kind of getting put on the spot, I didn't know what to say, and I began to get a little fearful, and Holy Spirit came to me, and he gave me boldness, and I spoke with such clarity and thoughtfulness and kindness and ended up being able to share the gospel. Or maybe you could say, you know, there was this time, I can remember when, when you know, he, he, he ministered to me in such a way that he gave me confidence to do something I would have never thought I would have done. But I had the confidence and courage to do it, try it, step out. And, and, and you know, and when it, it just seemed so easy and natural once I actually stepped out and did it. And that, I know now, was the Holy Spirit doing this in my life. Those times when he gave you the ability to do something to build up the church community whether that's through disciple-making or through some service or, or, listen, maybe through giving. Maybe Holy Spirit just spoke to your heart and said, you know what? We're living a really good life here. We need to be doing more in the giving side. And he just moved me to do something that I would have never thought I would do. Listen, if you're given in a supernatural way, let me just say this. It just popped into my mind because I've lived this life. If you're, living, if you're giving in a supernatural way, everybody else thinks you're crazy. If everybody else doesn't think you're crazy, you probably are very cautious in your giving. Supernatural giving makes your parents nervous. You see what I'm saying? It makes your children nervous. It makes your family members say, you're crazy. Yet the Holy Spirit says, watch what I'm going to do with your life. I'll open the windows of heaven and do something that nobody can even comprehend if you'll do that. Now, I want to give you the opposite for a minute. And this is really a reflective moment for all of us. If you're saying right now in your heart, Pastor, I don't have those experiences. I have no experiences. Then maybe you only know about God. Maybe you really don't have a relationship with God because a relationship has experiences. 
And so I would challenge you, if that's you, in just a few moments, we're going to pray together, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior and ask Holy Spirit to move into your heart. Ask the Spirit of Christ to come in. That'll be a moment you will want to leverage and take advantage of. For those of you who know for sure that you are in a relationship with God, I certainly don't try and talk anybody out of anything. If you already have Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life and yet you still have no Holy Spirit experiences that you could just name, then perhaps the Holy Spirit is bored to tears with your version of Christianity. Perhaps you have structured your life in such a way that you don't talk to him. You have such a good job that you don't struggle financially. You don't need him. Your health up to this point has been good, so why would you need him? Your kids are so young now, they've not had an opportunity to rebel and break your heart, so you don't need him. Just your life is comfortable. The accounts are padded. We live in our little bubble here in Utopiaville in a wonderful state, in a wonderful community. We drive new cars and live in wonderful houses. And maybe your Christian life is such a bore to the Spirit of God that he's confined to a corner of your life. Why would he show up? You don't need him. You say, well, what's the cure? Get courageous. Step out by faith. Do something that doesn't make sense on a piece of paper. Re-engage him in conversation and say, I want to make this about a three-minute invitation of repentance where I acknowledge, Holy Spirit, that I have lived with you for X number of years, but I've never conversed with you. It's like you moved into my life and I locked you in your room. And I've lived my life happy-go-lucky, and I've never needed you. No doubt when I need you, I'll come and lock the door and engage you. When the doctor says I have cancer, I'm going to run right to you. Do you, you see what a foolish life we're living right now? You're living below your Christian potential because Holy Spirit is not living experiential with you. Those of you who raised Baptists may look at the charismatic and say they're crazy. What if they're not? What if you're crazy for saying, I know there is a Holy Spirit, but yet I have no life with him? I'm saying find the middle ground this morning. The Bible is your final authority, but learn to experience Holy Spirit. If you've ignored him as a person... You've not taken up the mission of God. You've not done anything courageous. You've taken no risks with your life. If you have no intention of making a disciple and no intention of serving God and no intention of working in the nursery and no intention of being out of your comfort zone, do not expect Holy Spirit to show up in a powerful way in your life. I've read the book of Acts. You know why Holy Spirit is pouring his power upon these men and women? Because they, as Paul said, have risked their necks for the gospel's sake. Listen, if you want Holy Spirit to show himself to be true to you, then start engaging the mission. And you will see Holy Spirit show up and start making some life memories with you. Intentional conversation again this week. I hope you practiced that last week. Intentional conversation. Good morning. Holy Spirit, I see I'm still breathing. Thank you. Empower me for all that I need to do for you today. I am here. I am your temple. I am yours. Thank you for sealing. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for all you're going to do through my life today. If you need me to take a risk, show me. Lord, I'm terrified of speaking. Give me the words if you make me do that. God, what You just talk to him as if you were in a relation and say to him, Okay, I'm going to make coffee. Can you give me a few minutes? That's the way I start, okay? Uh, but then say to him, okay, Holy Spirit, I'm taking you to work today. Now, you do anyway, but it'd be nice to 
How many of you commute? How many of your commutes at least 15 minutes? Oh, yeah, of course. You're going to spend an hour in the car tomorrow. You could have a wonderful conversation with Holy Spirit. And you could talk to him about this idiot in front of me, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, if you were driving right now, well, you are because you're in me. What should we do about this guy? And just talk it out. You know, you could worship. You, you could talk about the work day. You could talk about the, the hard conversation you're going to have to have with your boss or a, a colleague or an underperforming coworker, And you could say, Holy Spirit, give me words to say today. Lord, I, I, that my cube mate drives me insane. Could you, you know, work it out. Work it out with the Holy Spirit of the living God who lives in you. And I'm going to say to you, take some risks. Ask for his help. Ask for wisdom in making decisions. Ask for courage. Ask for comfort. Ask for help. Now, here's what I want you to expect. He will talk back to you. Get ready for this. Because when you start engaging Holy Spirit, He will start talking to you. Now, not it's not going to come through the radio. It's not going to be loud like this. It's going to be in here. And He's going to start talking back to you and as soon as you know he's talking back to you, I want you to pause right there and say, Holy Spirit, can I just say thank you for talking back to me right now? Because I have ignored your voice for too long, and I've taken that for granted, and I'm hearing you loud and clear four by four right now, and I just want to say thank you because you just confirmed I'm a child of God. You just now verified my salvation. I am yours and you are mine and you are talking to me and you are living in the temple of the Holy God right now. Okay, let's keep talking. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Now, there are several things we need to take care of in this couple of minutes. Let me talk to the believers first. This needs to be a time of repentance for us. Solemn repentance where you're saying to God's Spirit, Holy Spirit who lives in you. Some radical reprogramming of my thought processes needs to start. Some radical retooling of my faith needs to begin this morning. God, you've said a lot to me that maybe for the first time I'm hearing. It's going to take me some time to process it, but God, I want to start by repentance. And I want you to fill in the blanks of what that looks like for you. You can make an altar of your seat. You can come and kneel here at the front for a few moments. We're going to be in prayer just for a few minutes. If you, whatever you need to do, you do it right now. I want you to cry out to God and I want you to say to God, I want to hear your voice. I want to live in an experiential way with you. Maybe some of you need to cry out and say, God, I've tuned your voice out for so long, I may not recognize it at first. Please give me ears to hear your voice again. Please give my heart a softness and a sensitivity to your leading and your moving in my life again. Maybe some of you who are just really sharp and together, you need to say to God, God, I haven't ever or lately told you this but I don't have it all together and I can't do it without you I'm not wealthy enough I'm not smart enough I'm not talented enough I'm not clever enough I don't have all the answers oh God I need you and while Christians are praying through those prayers if something struck a convicting note in your heart this morning and you're under the conviction that I've really never received Christ into my heart as my Lord, I don't know that the Spirit of God lives in me. And except you have the Spirit of Christ, you're not His. You're not in a relationship. Man, Pastor, I want to be in a relationship. I want Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of my life. I want to know God through this experience of receiving Christ and the indwelling presence of Holy Spirit. If you're ready to take that step, I want you to pray with me right now. And through a simple prayer of faith, ask 
Jesus to be the King, Lord, Savior of your life. Pray like this. Lord Jesus, I bow before you and I confess to you today that I'm a sinner. I know you know that, but I need to confess that to you. I cannot save myself. Lord, the, all of my goodness could never be enough. But I know that you died on the cross for my sins. You were buried and you rose again to be my Lord and Savior. And I know when you died, my punishment was placed upon you. And I know when you rose again, eternal life is available to me. Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Lord, I want to make you the king. Lord, savior, I'm not sure which words to use, but Lord, you know my heart. I want you to be in control of my life. I give myself to you. And I ask for you. And as I've heard today, your spirit to come and live in my heart and in my life. Lord, transform me. Let this be the turning point in my life now. I want to live for you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name.